Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay, we are off and running. Episode 12 of the Know Their Story podcast. Uh, we're coming up on that uh, terribly lucky number for our next episode. Maybe we'll just skip right to 14. I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think we got to take it. That's old baseball player and me talking. Um, with, us is, with us as always, Dustin from Taos, New Mexico. Uh, hey, everybody. I'm up in Seattle. Got a dark, finally rainy day to get some of the smoke out of here. Um, yeah, it's uh, actually super gorgeous. Your image uh, has a reflection out your window, which I never see, which is pretty great. <laughs> yeah, on my, my bicycle map there. Uh, yeah. we got a great episode today. Uh, joining us, uh, first enlisted and served with the 175th Radio Research Unit in Vietnam, 68 to 69. Uh, was there for a small event we like to call the Tet Offensive. Um, came back and I don't know how um, due to circumstances went back to Vietnam which which I'll let you get into uh, as a warrant officer with Apache troop uh, as an um, uh, enlisted during Tet warrant officer during an Apache troop as a lift pilot 70 to 71 uh, went on to a long career after that serving in Panama went to OCS uh, retired as a major and was a military attache to Honduras, has a master's in national security affairs, and retired in 1990 before embarking on a very long uh, second career uh, that saw him in Afghanistan and uh, Colombia and Central America. Please welcome Major Retired Ronald Glass. Thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you all. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure, Ron. Thanks for stopping by. Um, how did you? Uh, so, so you had you had a really long and kind of a storied career. Um, so let's start. Let's kind of start at the beginning. How did you end up? Um, how did you end up enlisting? Well, by running out of ideas. Uh, <laughs> I was, you know, an eighteen-year-old. Um, did well in high school. Uh, you know, president of the high school. Uh, boys and that sort of thing, but the uh, family situation was not terribly good. Uh, so I uh, went to an army recruiter, uh, completely out of ideas, and uh, uh, did the testing. They looked at the scores, said, okay, kid, you, you look like, uh, you know, you can do okay in the army. And then initially, uh, they said, look, we, we have something for you that's so secret, we don't even know what it is. And that sounded great, so I joined the Army Security Agency. It was a four-year enlistment, and with the promises that, no, you don't go to Vietnam, you go to uh, Bermudas or Sinop, Turkey or Japan or uh, Germany, and it'll be wonderful. And of course, we were the first class of uh, traffic analysts, intelligence analysts, where all of us were sent to Vietnam. So that's, that's how I got to Tet at uh, Benoit Air Base uh, with radio research. Uh, which now we can say, then we could not, but it was, it was part of Army Security Agency, which is a subset of National Security Agency. Then um, on to, um, uh, we, we did uh, Vietnam, we did uh, Tet, and then back to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, uh, now closed in Industrial Park, I believe, but there to instruct other ASAers when I got myself in trouble with a Post Sergeant Major, don't know if you want to hear about that or not. Well, uh, if you want to talk you want about to talk. it, we hear it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I was uh, well. It was the middle of winter, and it was a, the second story of a building with lots of ice on the ledge outside, and we were ordered to, uh, to clean the outside of the windows. And uh, you know, being able to read, I picked up the company SOP on ice dangers and safety and that sort of thing, and I politely, I thought, uh, told the, the first sergeant that, you know, I don't think we can do that. It would be in violation of, of the regs, uh, and it's a danger, you know. So I got called down and shoved up against a wall, and uh, 
the post sergeant major was called in and I was told that I'd be doing KP for the rest of my life. Uh, after having served one tour in Vietnam, that didn't seem like such a great idea. Uh, so I went off to the post personnel office and I said, get me off of this post. I, um, I've got to get off. Uh, and so they, uh, I qualified for, the, there was a West Point enlistment program and there was also Warrant Officer Flight School. And so I signed up for both and I said, just get me off of the post as quickly as you can. Uh, lo and behold, in came Flight School. So I went off to um, Fort Walters, Texas. And um, of course, I, I had no belief I would ever graduate. I'd never flown anything. I was actually afraid of heights. Uh, so, but, um, you know, after a lot of false starts, uh, especially I had to learn to have my eyes open when they did this auto rotation where they cut the engine of the, the helicopter to... Uh, to do a landing without the engine. And it took me a long time to figure out that that worked better with my eyes open. Um, but eventually, you know, graduated and um, surprised myself. Went off to advanced at Hunter Army Airfield, Savannah, Georgia. Um, and we took uh, tactical instrument flight training, qualified into the Hueys. And, and, uh, and then at my first assignment was at Fort Hood to do at the Steno Detachment Surveillance Target target acquisition night observation where someone had the bright idea of, of uh, flying these uh, 10 million lumens uh, searchlights that would be used in Vietnam to shine down on the enemy. Uh, wow. Not that that would make you much of a target. Oh no, no. that's not a trace <laughs> back to you at all. Yeah, but I did get a lot of night flight and, and uh, instrument flight training there, which served me very well in Vietnam, where you, you get these calls at one or two in the morning to go out and pick up, you know, a team at, at night. So uh, from there, um, off to uh, Vietnam and, um, uh, you know, checked into uh, Apache Troop, first of the ninth. They had just been deployed out to uh, Song Bay and uh, still remember the flight out there. You know, I was now a, a warrant officer. I thought I was hot stuff, you know, and uh, uh, an officer anyway, uh, which seemed great, um, and showed up in Cavland and uh, I said, where's the hooches? Well, there are no hooches. I looked around and Lo and behold, there were no hooches for us. And they said, well, well where are we going to sleep? So, well, we just got out here. Um, here's a, a, a culvert uh, that uh, you can slip into. Uh, and for until they get the hooches built, you'll be sleeping in, in one of these, in this uh, metal city sewer culvert. Um, That's eventually, great. the hooches built, uh, built, and they were just bigger culverts. But I had lived much better as an enlisted guy back at the Air Force Base in, in uh, Benoit than I did as a, a uh, Apache troop cavalry officer in Song Bay up against the border of Fishhook. Uh, um, so they were very primitive conditions. Uh, I mean, we, we literally were living in crates and, 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 and city sewer culverts with sandbags stacked on top of them. Well, that is the, the draw of the Air Force bases, is it not? <laughs> Yeah, well, we ate a lot better with uh, the Air Force uh, than we uh, did with, uh, with the Army. I remember the, the powdered eggs uh, was, was not the greatest. But it was kind of a somber um, unit that I joined. They had just lost uh, Everett uh, two weeks previous. Uh, it was, uh, I believe, their first loss in, in quite a while. Um, and I, I know you guys have covered that, I think, in, in, at some point. Um, and uh, I remember joining them as a co-pilot, but having a number of hours under my belt that uh, one of our first missions was to go into Cambodia. Um, and uh, that was extraordinary because it, it was very foggy uh, during the day. And we literally, um, I hope some of the other guys that remember this talk about it, but we, uh, we, we didn't quite fly. We hovered from Vietnam into, uh, Cambodia, um, flying over the roads and careful not to to go too high so that we lost contact with the ground. Um, and this was early morning. We had to, we went in on a mission to rescue uh, alert team that had been in contact the, the previous night. And, um, and so we, we hovered our way uh, to the coordinates. Uh, the fog was starting to lift a bit. 
and it was kind of surreal. Uh, our, our blue team was, uh, uh, we were parked. We actually shut down on top of a hill. Maybe not the smartest thing, but that's what we did. And uh, our, our blues went down to the, the area where we, we thought the, the ranger team was. And then they had a contact. And we're sitting up on the hill. Um, I still don't believe it's real, but we were sitting up there kind of just watching the contact. It was really stupid because could have had other units behind us um, that would have taken us out. But uh, they, uh, they, they got the lerps out. And, uh, and that was my introduction in my first few weeks to, uh, to life with Apache troops. Um, kind of a look back in history when the uh, journalists used to watch the Civil War engagements just from the sideline. <laughs> I think we play mental tricks with ourselves. Later, when I went into more advanced training as a, a commissioned officer and armor, and I went to the infantry officer advanced course, I, I realized then just how how um, stupid we were. Uh, very brave in a stupid way. <laughs> yeah. And you were mentioning you, you, you had a bit of a quiet period in terms of uh, losses for a while, but then you, uh, you yeah. have an enemy cause of mechanical, as they would say. <laughs> yeah, um, we would go out on night missions um, with some frequency, and, which for me was extraordinary. And I, I loved flying at night. Um, but remember, we had no GPS. So, you know, they give you coordinates that... Uh, that you've got a alert team that is in uh, uh, contact and needs to get out because they won't make it through the morning. And uh, I went out on one of those and um, uh, this was at night. And I, I still remember that it was flying just above the clouds on a moonlit night and it seemed like you were skating on glass. It was so smooth. And of course, to, to find the exact area, we had to call artillery and call in uh, uh, artillery shells that were flares once we were in the area so that we, we had a better fix on, on, on what the area was because again we're just navigating with maps at night and it's kind of black down there. Um, so on, on this particular mission we um, the LERP team um, said you know they were whispering on the radio you know we'd like to get out um, um, but we were making our way to the LZ and we're being pursued. They're saying this whispering so that the, the enemy didn't hear them. And so we, you know, we radioed back, yeah, go ahead and pop flares when you, uh, when you get out to the LZ or pop smoke. Uh, and so um, I remember we, we saw purple smoke uh, pop. They hadn't called on the radio and I said, okay, I've got purple smoke, no answer. So we set up for a long final going in. Um, then we noticed that the, uh, the uh, smoke actually set the LZ on fire at, at night. Um, and you know, what's going through your mind is you have this little vent hole at the bottom of the helicopter and you go into a burning field. You just imagine that going right up and your whole helicopter exploding. Um, but uh, we, we were set up on about a half mile final, uh, now kind of low level over the trees and uh, the artillery um, flares illuminating uh, the area, as was the, the, the fire in a portion of the, the LZ. And um, um, I hear somebody whispering on the radio and I turn the volume up. And, um, and I told them again, I said, we have, uh, we, we have the, uh, the smoke and we're on short final. And uh, I, all we heard on the radio was uh, machine guns going off contact and them telling us they haven't arrived at the LZ yet. So that was the bad guys that were calling us in. Um, and so we, we diverted in our, our, uh, our accompanying uh, um, red uh, Cobra, you know, put some rockets in where they thought that the bad guys were. Um, we eventually got back there and uh, picked up the team and got them out. That wasn't when I got shot down, but that was for me the scariest um, uh, mission maybe I, I had, uh, knowing we, we could have been letting on board some folks saying, take us to Hanoi, something like that. Um, the day I got shot down, though, we had another alert team that was in contact. This was daytime. We go out to the side. I was with Rich Cursilius, who's now, I believe, a priest, uh, God bless him. Um, 
And Rich and I, uh, we, we make our way out um, to this area and we have our, our red ship circling. We had a, a low bird that said there were chickens in the area and that's never a good sign when you're picking folks up. Um, kind of a sign of, of movement or bad guys. Um, anyway, we, um, we set up on, uh, on final and uh, LZ is kind of complicated because it had logs in there and, and some downed trees and, uh, and I was concerned uh, that we were going to, you know, uh, have a problem in, in terms of settling to the ground. So we, we just planned on hovering, got in and, um, you know, I, I said, you know, where's the lerps? Because there's no lerps in sight. And all of a sudden, the tree line on our right just opens up with a bunch of yellow flashes, um, AKs. And, uh, and so I, I think I screamed to Rich, you know, where the hell is, are the lerps? And he said, you know, F the lerps, let's get out of here. And we had a lerp coordinator on board. Um, not that we wanted to abandon the lerps, but there was just no way. And uh, so I got to about six, seven hundred feet, and um, some red lights were coming on on the uh, instrument panel, emergency instrument panel. And all of a sudden, and I had had this dream three days before, and the dream came true. And, and I was kind of outside of the helicopter looking down on the scene. The dream was wait till you're on the trees before pulling pitch, before taking that last energy out of the blades. And the, now I was living the dream in, in a real situation. And so we got up to about 900 feet and the helicopter started spinning because and, and, I'd lost the tail rotor. So I, I cut the power, which reduces the torque, but took all the pitch out of the blades. We were going down into the trees and uh, we were maybe 900, seven, 900 feet. And we went right into the trees um, and I pulled pitch as we arrived at the trees. And then my next memory was, um, that's strange. I'm, I'm looking at a helicopter from outside the helicopter and it's kind of upside down and the emergency lights on the helicopter are flashing. And there's something about that that's just not quite right. Uh, um, what I had not known is that I had been knocked out uh, my crew chief um, uh, had pulled me out of uh, the, the, the front seat and I was lying on the ground in the jungle looking at the helicopter upside down. It come through the trees wow. and then turned. And uh, everybody was uh, okay except our lerp guy was in, in bad shape. He'd hurt his back really badly, uh, but he was alive. And um, so then Rich and I argued, we, we had a... Um, I pulled my pistol out like, and, and we got a radio call that, uh, that uh, there was some uh, BC en route to our position. So our, our red team was putting rockets under their position to hold them off. And and, um, and we had a ship come in. Uh, this is near sunset now. We were worried we were gonna spend the night, but ship came in with a cable hoist, jungle hoist, put it down and, uh, and pulled us out. Rich Priscillius, who was an infantry officer, insisted on being the last guy out and he was and uh, uh, we got on that uh, lift bird and we got everybody out and uh, you know it was a, a good end to a bad day uh, and that was the first incident that the troop had had uh, really serious in maybe seven eight months uh, something like that um, that that was the end of our good luck. We, uh, we went back into Cambodia and, um, uh, you know, I went down another time. Uh, I was able to keep the aircraft until uh, we got to a fire base, but I had a, uh, over Cambodia, I got hit with 50, you know, a hole that big in the blade. If it had wow. been just a few inches and taken out the spar in the blade, then the blade would have come off. So, you know, thank God for those few inches. And um, a game of inches sometimes. Yeah, we had our unit commander on board, and uh, uh, it was it was strange about awards. You know, we 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 would screw up and get into these bad situations, or they would send us into bad situations, and then uh, trying to save our butts, they would actually give us awards for it. So, <laughs> so it was a good deal, you know. Yeah, like I would have done that even if not the award. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we when it was our folks who were trying to get out or someone who lost or saving a down crew, and we did that many times. Uh, you know, uh, I remember one horrendous day where a CH-47 crew uh, crashed and literally burned and you know, pulling these guys out. Uh, skin was falling off, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but what was satisfying is being able to, uh, you know, go in and, and get them out or at least try to. And, and we were more successful than not many times. Um, but the, the courage some of our guys showed, you know, to just be there and not give up go in and, and you know, there's a good chance you may not come out uh, that you know that, that's something you look back on so. we talked to uh, one of the blues and he said that he's 50 years just been unable to kind of get past all of the bodies that they had to carry out and it kind of finally hit him this last memorial day that even if they couldn't get the people out alive, he was finally able to look at the fact that, well, I still brought closure to those families and allowed them, you know, um, to have their son back or their husband back and at least know what happened. And he said it was just weird after 50 years to finally be able to yeah. accept that. Dan Tiggs was our blue, uh, great captain. Um, brave guy um, and uh, he went through that many many times um, uh, and poor Dan he went beyond that I, I used to fly him into these areas with this like 12 foot elephant grass and you come hovering down on the grass and say okay it must be three four feet and uh, they jump off with these 80 pound packs and it'd be like 12 feet and oh, you could almost hear the oomph through the uh, helicopter blades you know but he forgave me many times so uh, nice to be yeah. 20 and be able to get past that. <laughs> yeah, no, Dan, uh, you know, blue after blue after blue, uh, the team, uh, we put him into the worst situations, whether it was rescuing alert teams or special force teams that were in contact or uh, downed air crews, things like that. And they just came through every single time. Just, you know, tremendous bunch of guys. You're the first person that we've talked to on, on the podcast for our audience. The first person we've talked to who, and we, we've talked to a couple of people who did step down outside the wire, um, but they're able to clear the combat zone, maybe set down on them, you know, they, they had enough forward speed to, by the time they set down, they weren't worried about the, the angry enemy that had forced them to land. But you're, you're the first person we've talked to who has actually landed in an area that, of people who aren't very happy with you. Um, I mean, the red lights start going off and you realize what's it, what, I mean, I, I can assume I know what it's like, but what is it actually like when you start realizing we're set, we're going down and we're going down hard? That's where the training kicks in because you don't think about it. Um, I was fortunate and, and I, you know, I'm not a particularly spiritual guy, um, but I, I, no kidding, I literally had a dream like three or four nights before I went down with that very same scenario, and that I was outside the helicopter looking down. So the day that we were actually shot down, um, I don't know that I was thinking of anything, I was reacting, and, and uh, you know, I like to think that it saved our, our lives, that, um, you know, if I had kept the pitch up, the blades collapse, and you, you've fall in full speed and you crash and burn. Um, if I had not cut the throttle, um, which would be the tendency, you never like to cut the throttle, because it means you're going down, you know, um, but it keeps that energy in the blades as you're going down. So that's training and, and that's what, um, that's why we train, so that we don't have to think about it, because uh, there's literally no time. I never thought that, um, well, I, I kind of went to a spiritual place, but um, you're not really thinking through it. You're just reacting. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have seven grandchildren today and, um, um, you know, four adult children. And, and um, that training is, is the reason they're alive. It's the reason, you know, that I'm alive. Um, 
and, um, and later on when I was uh, a commissioned officer and working on training, I, I appreciated the fact that you have to work people hard um, to, so that they don't have to think and they don't, uh, don't need to, uh, to know how to react. They, they just react. Yeah, I was I was a range safety officer when I was with customs and you'd see people I mean you'd see some very talented people taking a slack day or you'd see people who couldn't afford to take a slack day like actually needed to work and you'd just tell them like hey fight like you train train like you fight like exactly. Exactly. yeah if you yeah. get I mean there are documented cases of police officers pulling their weapon and firing twice reholstering it because that's what they do on the range and it's like well that person is still standing um so yeah it is it's the training is important even if you have to do it all the time but that's why you do it all the time we um you know to do the things that we did um we also needed to uh to make light of life at moments so that you don't really embrace how serious the situation is. And if anything, Apache Troop knew how to have fun too. I hope some of the guys have talked about that. Um, I mean, you know, whether it's fishing with hand grenades, which they did. Um, uh, were, were you one of the pilot? We, we had, okay, wait a second. Oh, deer, deer hunting. <laughs> yeah. Wait a second. Jim Brown. I think it was Ed Beale and Jorgensen decided to uh, destroy an enemy food supply and blew up a fish pond. And yeah, yeah, that and uh, we heard the pilots were not very happy when they picked them up. Were you one of those pilots? When when they picked up the are you talking about the deer or what? Oh uh, no, they uh, they came across a fish pond that was feeding uh, the NVA, and so they blew it up with hand grenades, but. Uh, kind of like any scene you see in the movie where they blow up the whale and what goes up must come down. <laughs> uh, they were covered in fish guts and said the pilots were not happy with them as they were hosing out the Hueys after they got back. <laughs> yeah, fortunately I wasn't there that day. Um, but I, I know our guys, uh, I mean a legitimate target were, were the elephants that were showing the back straps that, that they were carrying munitions. And oh, yeah. those, those of us that love elephants, and I do, you know, it's always sad uh, that they had to be collateral damage. Uh, but yeah, you know, whether it was rockets into uh, elephants. Um, on the light side was the deer hunting. Uh, although the blues, I don't think, were thrilled with the fact that um, they were set down to go recover a deer for a barbecue. Uh, in enemy territory, and uh, um, I, I understand that, that that probably was not the wisest thing to do. And then they got back, and the cook said, "Wait a minute, the army has regulations on the meat that we're consuming, and I'm not cooking this thing." So uh, we, we did that in a private way. But yeah, there was there was. Um, I, I won't tell you that. I, I'm sure you've heard the bloody Bart story. Uh, We've heard a couple. Which one? Oh, that's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. John Which Bart, one you got? He's, he's, uh, he got? He's um, he's someone you want to look back on and, and enjoy all the crazy stuff. But when you were living it, it you know, it wasn't always uh, fun. <laughs> but but a great uh, Cobra pilot and um, great guy. And uh, rest in peace. He passed away uh, just a few years ago. Um, great American guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Craig Jorgensen. We had our, our crazies, you know. So. Craig Jorgensen told them that you know, because Craig is the the subject of the CBS video of of uh, Richard Threlkeld the day Craig got shot, and of course now you can pull it up on YouTube whenever you want. But it used to be, you know, you can go to almost any newscast movie if there's something about combat. There's a fifty fifty chance it's Craig getting pulled out, and he said every time Bart would see that he would call up Jay, uh, Craig and be like I think you would have learned to duck by now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right so you obviously made it out of Vietnam as we're talking here today um, you get back did you come back to the states did you go back to Europe what was your path after Vietnam oh, 
came back to the States and um, was humiliated in front of my mother. Here I was a combat helicopter pilot and I rented a Volkswagen Bug and drove it to San Diego and got almost to her driveway but had to do a U-turn and I couldn't figure out how to get it in reverse. I didn't know that you put the knob down. So that was my humiliation on return to the U.S. Um, but uh, from there, um, went to Panama, uh, where I was with the uh, Army helicopter uh, company there, and we flew the Panama Canal. We did disaster relief. We flew uh, a National Geodetic Survey. Uh, uh, I took a Huey to 14,000 feet, best I recall, between two thunderstorms, another moment of idiocy and without oxygen, to get to Colombia in a helicopter. Wow. Um, uh, but we, it was an exciting time. We, we covered the, uh, we went up to Nicaragua for the, uh, the Managua earthquake in 72, uh, 12,000 people dead in the city. Did um, operations out of the, uh, the airfield there. And then um, I um, decided that um, as a warrant officer, I'd always done a lot of chores which were really commissioned officer chores um whether it was writing awards or uh, you know writing reports things like that and, and so i applied for ocs and uh graduated as a uh, most of the aviators were going to armor uh, then because uh, there was no aviation branch at the time so i graduated as a uh, second lieutenant in armor um, Went off to Fort Hood where um, I, I served a bit as a platoon commander for the M60A2 tank, which had a stabilized turret, Shillelagh missile, uh, laser designation. All of this was a test bed for, um, for the Abrams tank later, but actually my helicopter uh, uh, pilot service, uh, I think uh, was part of the reason I was assigned to that, that test bed unit at Fort Hood where we practiced desert tactics, uh, that sort of thing. And I went off to uh, Germany um, as a captain and uh, was with the second of the first CAV on, uh, initially in aviation doing border uh, recon, but then got assigned over to be commander of L Troop, uh, which was patrolling the border uh, with Czechoslovakia uh, down in the Bavarian area. And then uh, because um, I, I had learned Spanish with my wife who uh, was from Honduras, um, was uh, assigned as a uh, military attache, uh, assistant army attache to Honduras during the Central American conflict. And uh, that conflict, uh, you recall, was uh, the Nicaraguan Sandinistas um, were causing a lot of problems. Uh, the Russians were uh, providing weapons. Cuba was providing insurgencies throughout the Central American region then. Uh, so I was one of uh, two army officers assigned to the embassy and uh, one of two army officers authorized to uh, be on the border with Nicaragua and El Salvador and, and report on, on both of those insurgencies and the Honduran army's reaction to those insurgencies. But I also got transitioned over to the, the C-12. So I, I actually qualified in the Air Force C-12, Beach Super King Air, uh, uh, the 24th Conquering out of Andrews in order to be assigned as an army attache and a purple crew member. Purple crew meaning that the attaches, one, we had to be pilots in Honduras then, uh, and we had the uh, Air Force, um, Navy, um, uh, and uh, Coast Guard uh, pilots also assigned. So we supported all of Central America as an additional duty, uh, and then we did our, uh, as an army guy, I did my Army uh, uh, liaison stuff with, uh, with the mill group with uh, the Honduran Army and so, so uh, I did that work there. It was fascinating and, and created my interest in democracy, insurgencies, um, uh, and, and um, Marxist-Leninist tactics to overthrow democratically elected governments. And that, that experience kind of was my platform to later going to USAID as a democracy governance officer. But from uh, Honduras, took command and general staff at the uh, School of the Americas, learned a little bit more about insurgencies and, um, and how to uh, counter them uh, or resist them. Um, 
and then uh, from there went to the Navy postgraduate school, uh, Army guy at Navy postgraduate, in a year-long uh, master's degree program for national security affairs. Uh, and then, um, then I was assigned as the, uh, the national project officer for a classified program that was focused on emerging threats uh, from Latin America. Uh, most people can guess Cuba and, and, and Nicaragua. Uh, and, um, and at that time, there were emerging threats in the US. And so we, we worked on that and um, hopefully contributed to the protection of uh, our country from, from those Marxist threats, which still are threatened today, actually, uh, in my opinion. Not necessarily from there, but from other quarters and yeah. in domestic quarters. Um, Did so you? Yeah. You said you were an observer on the border. Did you qualify for that job by telling them about the day in Vietnam when you sat on the hill and observed the fight? <laughs> yeah, that was a stupid day, so I didn't use that. No, actually, down I, I, I took uh, State Department um, um, political officer uh, Al Bar. I remember. In Honduras, we, we drove the, um, kind of did a border trace, and we drove to a place where Sandinistas had been putting uh, landmines on the road in Honduras between Cifuentes and Trojas, and went out that day, and, and so I got to get shot at again. I, I looked off from our, we had an armored vehicle. Um, I mean, it looked commercial, but unfortunately, it also looked like the vehicles that the Contras were using. So. The Sandinistas, the road was 50 meters that way, it was Nicaragua, and we were in Honduras, and uh, saw some mortar flashes and had my ah, shucks moment. And, um, and then they opened up with machine gun fire, and we, we stopped in a defilade and turned the vehicle around, went off back from the way we, we came. And uh, so that was my most interesting day in Honduras, and getting shot at again. Um, but um, yeah, you know, the Vietnam experience, I think, just um, helps you um, maybe, um, you know, react appropriately. Um, as a helicopter pilot, you've got to be able to talk and read a map and chew gum all at the same time. And that kind of is a life skill that can serve you in a lot of other places. Yep. Yeah. But from our, uh, I, I Retired as a, a major promotable um, in, um, in uh, never put on um, lieutenant colonel rank uh, in 1990 to take an aerospace uh, firm uh, position uh, representing European aerospace firms to uh, the U.S. community. And after two years, I realized that, that wasn't the life for me. So, so I, I went back to Honduras to write my great Central American novel with my Honduran bride um, and um, got picked up at the embassy as a USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development um, uh, officer in, in the area of democratic governance. So, uh, were you staying in Tegucigalpa or where, where were you staying in Honduras? Yeah, Tegucigalpa. Yeah, exactly. I've actually been back to Tegucigalpa now uh, and, and this is a, a recommendation to the younger um, officers uh, is that USAID um, once upon a time was uh, not really amenable to having a lot of ex-military guys with them. I think that's really changed because over the last uh, two decades what AID has experienced uh, is a, a lot of interaction with military in Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Sudan, uh, other countries where we have military uh, presence or, or special teams or whatever. So, you know, right now I think there's a real appreciation for um, uh, former military to, uh, to join USAID in, in areas which can range from democratic governance, security, to environment, to human rights. And, and I've kind of worked most of those areas uh, and completely enjoyed it. So I had a 20 year follow on career with USAID and, and uh, uh, I, I often tell people, and I mean it, I think I've had one of the more interesting lives of anyone I've ever known, um, and always in the field. So literally, uh, with AID, I went back to Honduras, uh, worked governance programs, uh, rule of law programs, human rights programs, civil society strengthening programs, uh, and then from there went to Dominican Republic, worked on justice um, 
at foreign programs and then to Nepal, kind of picked up on some of my army experience when I went to Nepal in 2002. We lived in Kathmandu for three years, but the city was surrounded by a Maoist insurgency. So, you know, you could not just go out anywhere in the countryside. And um, was able, I was the conflict management and mitigation officer with USAID and Kathmandu and, and worked on the uh, uh, on funding programs to help, for example, um, single Maoist insurgent mothers who came out of the movement with babies. They were kind of trafficked as sex slaves within the Maoist movement in the field and, and helped them readjust and reintegrate into um, normal life, uh, medical attention, that sort of psychotherapeutic attention. Um, also worked on um, the interagency planning to deal with the insurgency from um, the governance standpoint, and that is getting service delivery out to the field in these conflict areas where people are being killed, knocked off, uh, just for not being Maoist. So, you know, I got to kind of revisit some of the issues um, in, in uh, there and then I went to Colombia uh, with USAID uh, and worked uh, on um, justice programs, but also demobilization of the FARC. Uh, and uh, the the uh, it's a misnomer to say they were really ideological insurgencies because they became narco enterprises under this ideological banner. But they became businesses yeah. more than they became uh, uh, Marxist insurgencies. And uh, got to work on those issues. And then did so well there, uh, that's me saying it, uh, that they sent me to Afghanistan where uh, for two years where I became the, uh, the acting director of the provincial reconstruction team. And this is an office which grew from 36 to 104 people. And we had representation of 20 forward operating bases, AID representatives there, and also with the regional military command. So eventually became the civil military liaison to the ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force and uh, the U.S. forces, and got to work on uh, joint military-civilian um, integrated security development planning at the, the provincial level, at the national level. And uh, then my prize for doing Afghanistan for two years was to go to Russia, where I was with the um, U.S. Embassy in Russia. Uh, as the director of the uh, Democracy Governance Office or uh, Democratic um, uh, Democracy Transition Initiatives Office. Um, and there we were supporting human rights groups and um, um, justice sector reform and anti-corruption programs, uh, all the things which the Kremlin absolutely hated Anti-corruption in Russia, that's, that's yeah. job security fighting that. There was an $87 million program, and so we were providing grant support to local Russian organizations to work on these issues of human rights, independent media, um, justice reform, anti-corruption. The Kremlin hated us, uh, hated it, lots of dirty tricks, lots of surveillance, uh, uh, and eventually they, we were so successful that the Kremlin uh, insisted that we shut down. So they, we told then Secretary uh, Clinton that uh, AID needed to shut all of its programs down, which was a real travesty. It was a, a, a historic strategic moment for the Russians um, because they had two choices, continue the resurgence in authoritarianism or strengthen uh, the, the path towards a real democracy. Uh, unfortunately, the Kremlin had all the assets, all the resources. They put many of our partners in jail, um, killed a few of them, still killing a few of them, the most recent trying to kill Navalny. Um, and um, yeah, it was, um, you know, going through Vietnam, defending against um, communism, working against communism and Marxism in Central America. In, in Maoist Nepal, uh, and then ending up in Russia, and then, um, you know, uh, us being rather, um, well, we, we lashed out, uh, in, in my personal opinion, with a wet noodle. Uh, we, we didn't, we were approaching the U.S. elections, and, 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 and probably uh, that administration then didn't want to say that the Russian reset had failed, but we, we failed the, the Russians uh, that were supporting that democratic reform, and that's been upsetting given that most of my life has been about um, 
working against what we know is, is a, a uh, Marxism, a Leninism that kills not thousands or hundreds of thousands, but over the course of history has killed tens, hundreds of millions of people. And um, so as you can guess, I'm a little bit passionate on that. that so. Oh. Uh, the the next in-person reunion for Apache Troop, I want to have a beer with you. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I got some questions that we're not going to ask on uh, a documented format. Um, <laughs> Actually, I have a... Oh, go ahead, Dustin. Go ahead, go, no. uh, I, have a, I have a two-part question. One's going to go back to the past so we can tie it into to what's going on today. Um, but what kind of country did you come back to from Vietnam? Uh, what was that experience like for you? Not necessarily the protesters at the airport, but just the experience of having been at war for a year in the country that you came back to. What was that like? Well, I came back twice. The first time coming back enlisted in 68, um, feeling kind of lonely. Um, uh, I, I, I lived in my own little bubble, obviously, between family and military bases. Um, so didn't get the worst of it. Um, uh, figured out in, in, uh, that um, you know there there is there was room for common ground. All of us should hate war, but I, I had interactions with uh, some of the protesters that, that tried to recruit me, even when I was uh, in the army, and and um, you know I was trying to uh, help them re or remind them of. Uh, that not all that seems well, Marxism, Leninism uh, ends well. Um, my high school girlfriend um, agreed to date me even though she had become a hippie. That was kind of tough. You know? um, did no drugs. I did no drugs. I think she did. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a strange period. The, uh, the, when I came back from Apache Troop, the second tour in Vietnam, um, uh, you know, I really just, I was, I was in Nicaragua, uh, or rather in, in Panama, and doing work like Nicaragua and Colombia uh, out of helicopters, so I missed a lot of it. Um, but um, what I am uh, thrilled about is, is, is today, uh, that despite all of the political discord which the country is experiencing, um, people uh, hold up. Our, our, our U.S. military, and, and that, that that really makes me feel quite good, and I think that they deserve it. Um, having done two years in Afghanistan as a civilian, um, um, I can tell you that uh, this new generation of soldiers is uh, superb. Uh, I cannot imagine the, the intensity of what they go through, and, and I saw it in Afghanistan, and they keep going back, and you know, you talk to guys that have done Iraq twice and Afghanistan once and Southern Sudan and things like that. Um, you know, just um, really a great generation of new soldiers and, and, and officers and to be respected. Yeah, I mean, it blew me away this morning when General Funk said his son has spent five years combined deployed to the Mideast, yeah. five years of his life. Uh, yeah. But the, the reason I was asking is, I mean, I, yes, as a country, we do a much better job of separating the soldiers from the war. And, and even though there's a lot of correlations you could make, depending on the argument you want to make, between Vietnam and, and the Middle East, um, we at least don't blame the soldiers now. But the reason I ask is we talked to Lieutenant Colonel Lozano, who's a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel, two weeks ago. And he, we were talking about the effect of the lockdowns on the mental health of soldiers. And he brought up an interesting point of, in today's environment, it's from what he's seen been very tough on returning veterans to have gone over and fought for something they believed in and come back to people telling them this is a terrible, you know, they turn on the news, this is a terrible country to, you know, on and, and, and as someone who came back from Vietnam under those same kind of correlations of, you know, this is terrible and, and, and trying to kind of take the honor from that service. I was just wondering if you had any advice for today's soldiers who might be going through that, that mental 
ringer really of having done something that they believed in honorably and come back to be told that they're defending a terrible country and it needs to be burned to the ground. I mean, literally in some cities. Yeah. Um, you know, we, um, first we fight for our unit uh, rather than an ideology or even our, our country. When we're in the field, you're, you're part of the team and, and um, you fight for yourself, you fight for them. Uh, that's the day-to-day -day reality of it. Um, in, in Vietnam, I, I, I know some people had to put on a, um, they had to put themselves in a place where they hated the enemy. Um, and, and I, fortunately, I, I, I never hated the enemy, although I was certainly prepared to kill them. I mean, these were young kids who, uh, were being put out there much as we were being put out there. Um, what those young kids um, didn't understand, which we, at least I understood at, at some point, was that uh, the greater good was um, to fight there and, and resist the communism. When we withdrew, you know, everyone says, you lost 350,000 uh, Vietnamese in Vietnam, 54,000 Americans. Uh, yeah, well, after we left, a million died you know, because we left when the, the North Vietnamese invaded the rest of the region and Cambodia, et cetera. So, um, you know, when you come back and hear people say that it was a terrible, all war is terrible and, and all loss is terrible, even of our enemies, these, these 18, 17 year old, 16 year old kids that died fighting us. Um, and, and the humane thing is, is try not to hate them, but, be ready to serve the greater good, which for me is fighting communism and, and, and or fascism, wherever you find uh, this blind violence or, or control. Uh, so when I came back, you know, I, I Navy postgraduate school elsewhere, I tried to develop their, our curriculum advisor, by the way, at the Navy postgraduate school, our first day said, gentlemen, I'm a neo-Marxist, get over it if you can, um, at the Navy postgraduate school for the curriculum advisor for Western hemispheric studies. Uh, and uh, initially we were outraged and then we got it. Um, he was there to challenge us on what Marxism Leninism is. And we also had guys like Frank Teddy who had been a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, you know, so they, they had it nicely balanced and it served us well. But, you know, I think we need to, to encourage our young people to read history, understand it, study it. Um, and especially what happens under Marxist, Leninist, authoritarian states, the, the tragedy, not of thousands, but of hundreds of millions. Um, yeah. And so that's my argument to some of these younger people today, if they will listen, which many don't. Um, well, I tell my girls, I have 13 year old twin daughters, and I tell them like the lesson of history is you can vote your way into socialism, but most of the time you gotta shoot your way out of it. Um, Absolutely, yeah, very good. Uh, but I'm, I'm I'm worried about today. But when I got back from Vietnam, frankly, I was busy, um, and I wasn't living in San Francisco or Berkeley or some of those places. Although Boston was close enough. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dustin, you, you had something earlier when I came. Oh, uh, no, that, you, you did exactly what I was going to do. Just connect those two pieces. Nice job, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I wonder, um, you, you said you were part of this, uh, uh, the experimental tank piece. Uh, did, you, did you maintain your relationship with General Funk while you were uh, rotating into, um, into armor? the armor? No, no, I really, I didn't. And he was way above my pay grade. Um, yeah. I would have loved to, but I, I, I didn't. Um, uh, had some great commanders, uh, Frederick Brown uh, at, at Fort Hood, uh, and we were the test bed for desert tactics. Uh, uh, and uh, actually, I had a chance to brief Ariel Sharon. I was picked to, to give him a presentation on what we were doing. So learned a lot there. Um, it served me well uh, later, both in Germany and uh, subsequent assignments. But what was interesting is, you know, there, this was a $20 million turret in this tank, every bit as, as sophisticated and complicated as a, a helicopter. 
maybe not quite requiring the same dexterity skills, but the, and we had 18, seven, you know, 18 year old kids, 19 year old kids doing the maintenance. Uh, other units were going home at six, seven at night. We were there till one in the morning, getting up at 4.30 in the morning for our five mile run uh, and, and just working our hearts out because we, we believed in that system, which uh, was the most modern system of its time, you know, between the Shillelagh missile, the laser designation, the stabilized turret. Uh, stuff, a lot of it we now see in the Abrams tanks. So, so for me, aviation helped me adjust to that um, technical uh, environment and challenge. And uh, so I'm you know, grateful to my aviation days for that. Well, I think it is. It's interesting. I think people lose sight of how young the Army is. Uh, when, yeah. we, when we screened, we did a, a, a kind of test screening of the film at the Museum of Flight last Veterans Day. And they had the question and answer period, and, and one of the audience members was a bit upset um, that we didn't shy away from what a downed helicopter is like. I mean, we have the tape of, of the day um, that, that Everett and, and his crew uh, were shot down and killed, and Doc Del Valley gives an incredibly powerful, just four-minute soliloquy of, of what it's like as a blue to go into those burned wreckage and yeah. we I mean we went back and forth on on how we we're going to cover it and then we're like you know this is a documentary and we're not documenting their lives if we don't tell the whole truth um so this lady was saying you know I can't believe first I can't believe there's children here and it's so how come you had to be so violent in your description and it's like, well, we've got to. And, and, you know, played it very political, you know, like, nice. And I said, well, you know, they're my children. They're my daughters. They've watched me edit the movie. This is, you know, kind of like a premiere. There's no way they weren't going to be here. And I really regretted, I thought about it later, but, you know, my girls at 13, out of everyone in the audience, are closest in age to what, the, what you guys were in Vietnam, dealing with that type of stuff. You know, everyone else is in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Like, these girls are five years removed from possibly having to do that. So it's a very sober reminder. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I freaked out because my daughter was the next one with a question and, and my feisty daughter. And she starts out before the question, she starts out with, first of all, and immediately I'm like, oh no, oh no, no one forced me to be here and I'm just up on stage I'm like oh boy oh no oh no oh no oh no and so I finally was like land the plane McKenna <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I had not experienced in Vietnam but I did experience in Afghanistan was the role of our our women soldiers who are also incredibly courageous and, and brave and, and I can't even imagine you know that some of them are mothers with children back home being taken care of with family and, and they put themselves at risk they're in a war like Afghanistan, and many of our wars today, there, there's no front line. Um, uh, you know, if you're driving a truck, you're as susceptible to an IED as anybody else. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, one of my ancestors is uh, Deborah Sampson, who uh, fought in the Revolutionary War as a woman, dressed as a man. She got away with it for a few years. Uh, you can find her in, on the in Google. Um, Disney's going to want to buy that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, women, uh, uh, you know, whether it's World War II or now in Afghanistan, Iraq, they, uh, um, they're an important element and, and they should never forget them. So, um, yeah, it is. Um, you know, you're talking about an entire military now, fathers, daughters, sons, wives. Um, you talk about, it's very habit to say, you know, a wife support group, like there's the husbands who have their wives are, are deployed. And, um, you know, everyone, we, we need to recognize that a bit better, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. But you know, my memories of Apache Troop are probably the most intense because the situation was probably the most intense. And um, the personality is colorful. Um, uh, the bravery and, and, uh, 
everybody um, so evident and, uh, and and all of it kind of grounded in, in uh, protecting our own, protecting and, and, and not leaving folks behind. And in that sense, uh, uh, and, and that's my hardest moment is when I lost my two roommates two weeks apart, um, uh, Paul Fodi and, and Larry Lilly. Um, and, and the kind of guy that, you know, Larry was um, a, a lieutenant who are, I still have this very vivid picture of him on his cot in our little three-man hooch um, reading the Bible. Um, getting news about his um, his uh, daughter, who was I guess newborn or eighteen months, something like that, um, and then you know losing someone like that. The world needs more Larry Lilies, and, and we lost him. And I suppose God had a purpose in that, uh, um, which is still hard for all of us to understand. And and then um, you know guys like Paul Fody, who was my other roommate from New York. Uh, very colorful, blustery uh, New Yorker. Um, you know, a lot of uh, zest for life, and, and to uh, to lose both of them over in Cambodia. You know, um, that that is something that just sticks with you for the rest of your life. And uh, um, you know, I, I I've been to VA hospitals. I, I don't have anything I think approaching T TSD, but um, but if I do, it's it's the loss of those brothers who, you know, I, I've enjoyed my life. I've had a fabulous life, an interesting life. Uh, but frequently, um, you know, I I regret that uh, they didn't uh, continue. And, um, and with every loss that we suffered, uh, Osborne, Lily, uh, uh, others, um, uh, you know, it, it's to the degree where we enjoy where we are, we enjoy our family and our children. It's that deep, deep, soulful, tearful regret that that our, our comrades who were lost didn't get to do that, you know, with us. So that affects me, you know, a lot still. We've we've talked to some veterans who say, you know, they decided that the best way to honor them was to live the best life that they could. Um, and honor him like that um and, and that's all you really you really can do go out and yeah. live the life in the country that they died defending yeah yeah so, um kind of very very open-ended general question here one of the ones we we like to to kind of wind down with um just any advice in general you would have for today's veterans or even other Vietnam veterans, you know, Vietnam veterans still are the, we think of, we've been to two Apache troop reunions now and still people coming to their very first one, still coming yeah. to tell their stories mm -hmm. for the first time. Uh, what advice would you have for veterans in terms of living that best life? Even now it's not too late. Well, it, it one, follow your interest. Uh, any work you do, hopefully, is something you enjoy. And if you're not prepared, and I'm talking to younger veterans now, if you're not prepared, get prepared. Uh, continue to educate yourself. Uh, you can start off in community colleges, uh, which are cheap, and then do your last year at a regular college. Uh, your degree will be that last regular college, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, you only have one life, so live it uh, doing what interests you, what you enjoy. Um, but also don't wait for anything to come to you because generally it won't. So you have to go pursue it. Uh, prepare yourself. Um, in, in the world of the internet, um, I, I used to tell my, my team in my AID life, there's nothing I can't prepare for in four days on YouTube. Um, using incredible sources, except maybe open heart surgery, you know. So become an expert, um, use credible sources. There's a lot of, you know, fake um, uh, news and, and uh, sources out there. But, you know, whether it's a credible think tank or institute or educational resource, keep learning. And, and I still, you know, I'm, I'm 71 now, and I, I hope I never stop learning. Uh, uh, so... You know, I take advantage of all of these new resources. 
Um, and uh, for the younger folks, I would say that um, it doesn't seem obvious at first, but uh, you come out of the uh, military with a lot of important skills and in discipline, in uh, uh, management, in leadership, which is different from authority. Um, and, uh, you know, layer on top of that some specific skills in, in whatever area interests you and, and uh, you'll, you'll stay competitive. To the older guys, my generation, you know, at this point, we're, we're happy to wake up in the morning and be alive. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, stay interested in life, stay interested in, in uh, knowledge and, um, and of course, cherish your family. That's, that's about where we're at. Uh, at. At one point in my career, uh, well, maybe both Army and USAID, I, I let my, my work consume me to the point that I was not as attentive to the family as I should have been, and that's, that's a regret. So you know, don't let that happen. Keep a life balance. That would be another piece of advice. Perfect. That's absolutely perfect advice. And then if even just one person, you know, we, we don't have to change the entire world, just one person, it's worth it. Dustin, do you have anything to close? Uh, nothing for the record, no. Well, I know enough not to ask for your off-the-record thoughts. <laughs> well, I've really appreciated this opportunity, and I appreciate the work you all are doing to keep uh, memories alive and lessons alive, and, uh, and uh, hopefully a new generation can build off of that. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.